Hi, I'm Rajiv. Hi, I'm Venkat. And this is Dharmology. Namaste, Venkat. Namaste, Rajiv. Quite interesting times these days. Uh, civil unrest, police brutality, election season coming up, so race relations, immigrant issues. Many things are happening. And a word we often hear is privilege. And we hear it in many forms and fashion. For example, somebody may say or invoke the term white privilege. I want to understand a little bit better as to what the idea of privilege is. Do people use it in the right context? Or is it being loosely misused or, or highly misused? And then what does that mean to the narrative of Hindus and Hinduism, uh, not just here in the United States, but also with what is happening in India? So with that, what is privilege? Privilege um, can be broken into two categories. So what I would call explicit privilege and implicit privilege. So explicit privilege is um, a special right or advantage or immunity that's granted to a specific group or person by or through law. So it's formal, right? And, and examples of explicit privilege would be um, affirmative action, where citizens of a state or a country have provided uh, privilege to a minority group or minority groups to um, uh, right the wrongs of the past, right? That, that could be one reason for, for granting privilege. Mm -hmm. Another example of explicit privilege would be um, diplomatic immunity. That's a privilege that's granted to diplomats. They're exempt from or they're immune from criminal prosecution and civil um, uh, suits against them. So um, those are examples of e explicit privilege. And implicit privilege is something that's granted to uh, granted by society, right? Due to societal norms, um, you know, there's a certain amount of respect provided to doctors or professors or wealthy people um, or famous personalities. So that's what I call implicit privilege that results from societal norms. Why is it important for us to, A, break these up into two categories, explicit and implicit, but then to talk about it, um, not just because of, of the times we are in, but in general, why should we even talk about or evaluate this, evaluate this idea of privilege? Yeah, so I'll, I'll address your first question first. Why, why do we have to distinguish between explicit and implicit? I would say that most privilege is um, of the implicit variety, right? And so people loosely use the term privilege, and they don't distinguish between explicit and implicit. So, for instance, you know, when people use the term white privilege, um, in today's United States, there are no explicit laws that provide a special right or advantage to whites um, relative to other 
racist. So it definitely is not explicit privilege. They're talking about implicit privilege, you know, societal norms. That's mm. what they're talking about. And um, I think it's very important to talk about this topic because um, the people who are controlling the narrative right now are um, basically trying to establish the fact that privilege extends to an entire race, which is um, entirely untrue. Privilege does not attach to a race. Privilege may attach to individuals or societies, but definitely not races. And by that token, privilege also does not extend to religions, at least in the West. Correct. That is correct. Can it be said that in some countries, especially the Islamic republics, they have chosen to extend privilege to their religion? Yes, that's a very good example. So in um, the Islamic republics, um, the religion of Islam enjoys privilege and explicit privilege, right, by law. Hmm. Actually, in that case, it's both explicit and implicit. But, you know, if, if there's a law that, that grants immunity to people, um, you know, who follow the Islamic faith or give, grant them a special right or an advantage, that is explicit privilege. And in most Islamic countries, there is definitely explicit privilege for people who follow Islam. Does that make one or the other, explicit or implicit, a better candidate for review, a, a better candidate for reassessment, a better candidate for critique or even criticism? Or should we be talking about privilege regardless, regardless of it being explicit or implicit? Yeah, I would say in the American context, um, we should focus on implicit privilege because in the United States, there is no special right or immunity granted to whites or any other, um, you know, um, <clears throat> to, to whites in general, right? Because the term that's used is white privilege. But now, of course, they're trying to extend that to other um, minority groups that they view as being privileged, right? Including Asians and Hindu Americans and so on. The reason I think in my head, as you were describing explicit and implicit, in granting explicit privilege, we have the opportunity to have a conversation about the privilege. It seems, at least in my mind, to go through a process of dialogue and debate and evaluation and uh, other democratic um, uh, processes like voting before that is granted. Implicit privilege, on the other hand, um, may be lurking around or being reinforced by, as you said, societal norms or even institutions that are outdated. 
and are being strongly held on and is therefore more dangerous because there is no opportunity for it to be debated about, for it to be evaluated, for it to be voted upon. So implicit privilege in a democracy, uh, if it is if it is, still exists, is actually a, uh, a stench, um, a smell of something very, very bad. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily look at it that way. So I don't, I don't view privilege as necessarily a bad thing. So let me, let me explain what I mean by that, right? Um, so implicit privilege in many cases is earned. So for instance, a doctor, I use the example of a doctor, right? Um, a doctor has a certain level of respect um, that he or she garners in society. And that respect is earned through hard work because obviously you know that it takes many years to become a doctor. And if you're a specialist, it takes even that much longer, right? So <clears throat> that privilege is earned um, in, this, in the case of the doctor, you know, the respect and the um, uh, ability to earn a certain level of income. Now, there's nothing that's earned privilege, right? And as long as the person is not misusing that privilege, I think the problem is not privilege itself, but misuse of privilege that is the problem. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So you mentioned, or maybe it is just in my head, that academia enjoys, as you mentioned about doctors, a certain implicit privilege. And... I think that sometimes, especially these days, especially when we talk about Hindus, that academia is misusing its implicit privilege. What do you think about that? Yeah, that is that is very true. And um, th to understand how they're misusing privilege there, I, I had mentioned earlier that um, privilege doesn't attach to a race but privilege can attach to a society. So I think it's important to address that issue um, or explain what I mean by that before we go to the um, talking about academia. So as you know, Western societies have um, <clears throat> enjoyed both implicit and explicit privilege over most societies that they colonized, right? And um, so when they were colonizing uh, other countries, like obviously Britain and France, when they colonized various Asian countries and African countries, they exercised privilege over the people in those countries explicitly by having laws that discriminated against the people, the natives. And then, then after they left, they still enjoy implicit privilege. And the reason they enjoy implicit privilege is they have, um, you know, by, um, you know, by characterizing these people and, you know, um, telling them what their history is and, and being the outsider who has told the story about the natives, they have set up the story in such a way that the, the colonizer was the one who is civilized and the colonization was necessary to bring about civilization of backward 
communities. So that, you know, so through that, because they've done that for many, many, you know, for at least a couple of centuries in many cases, um, you know, that idea is ingrained in many of the people in these, um, you know, colonized societies. And so there's this view that, oh, if, if somebody from the West, especially a white person says something, uh, it gets more attention. So that, you know, they've, they've garnered this implicit privilege. And what, what is happening is the academics um, you know, the, like the Indologists, who are mostly white, are taking advantage of this societal privilege to f- continue the colonization of through um, academia. So what they're trying to do is still, as an outsider, control the narrative about, um, you know, the the people in the various colonies that they're no longer colonies but they're you know through through academia they're still trying to perpetuate or or continue the colonization by um you know um influencing or, or or telling people how what their history is and what their tradition is and and that um you know what you know that their tradition is backward and that you know the the Western viewpoint is the correct viewpoint, or the 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 Western secular viewpoint is the, um, you know the the most um, the correct narrative. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so I see the implicit aspect um, kicking in in a in a colonized. Um, uh, Countries, consumer, uh, uh, or somebody who has ancestry in, in in being colonized, in the sense that uh, they implicitly take the words of a white historian about their own history over the native version of their own history, and I think in my observation now I see it that this is why it is so easy for the Western, um, you know, American these days, German Indologists in the past uh, to get into conferences, to get their papers published, to get their books uh, being promoted by big print publishing or publishers. Um, uh, They are invited to news channels as opposed to um, the natives, uh, and especially in case of Hindus and and Indians, this is very visible, which is that the standards that are employed to accept um, uh, an academic paper or accept an, uh, a professor to present in a conference in North America is much more higher than the bar that has been set by Indians in India when it comes to a, a, a white professor uh, from anywhere outside India who could just be a uh, be an activist uh, with no background in academia and and present himself or herself uh, as an expert on the issue and then and then tell the Indians what their history is they're doing this uh, not just to Indians but they're also doing this to other societies right uh, they're doing this to the Chinese they're doing this to the Africans um, you, you know in our particular example, we're, we're talking about Indologists, so we're talking about what they're doing with respect to India. 
And um, one thing to note here is I, I want to give an example. So the in, Indologists, right, they, they approach our texts and our literature with a hermeneutics of suspicion. Uh, you know, they basically dismiss tradition. They basically say that, um, you know, any scholar or pundit from India um, that has a different viewpoint and that respects tradition is backward, not scientific, not objective, um, you know, not divorced from interest in the text. So they, they basically want to read or, or sorry, they, they don't even, they basically want to um, handle Indian texts with a viewpoint of suspicion, right? They have no, and, and they, they have a, um, how to say this, they, they have, um, that's the viewpoint from which they address the text. And they don't really have any interest in the text, right? They, they, don't, they don't have any respect or interest for the text, unlike the natives. And, um, and that's the approach that they take. And by doing this, they come up with really far-fetched and ludicrous claims, right? And, and you know, you, one way to understand this is to kind of look at what they have done um, in terms of interpretation of the Mahabharata, not interpretation, sorry, of, of what, how they have um, handled the Mahabharata. So in the area of Mahabharata studies, you know, there are various um, very far-fetched theories. Um, you know, there's this one theory that the Mahabharata, the original epic, was really a, a collection of unrelated poems that were sung by or composed by uh, Indo-Germanic people that were, um, you know, migrating towards India. Now, there is no, <clears throat> so this was, this is where this whole Aryan invasion theory originated. Um, the early Indologists, uh, and I think it started with Lawson, uh, and may have been even some prior to him, but, you know, he, he's known as, I think, the father of Mahabharata studies. And, and he, um, came up with this idea of this Aryan migration and the Mahabharata as being a, a battle between the uh, Aryan, uh, you know, migrants and the black indigenous. So just to give you an idea that also their, their interpretations were originally or not inter their, their approach to the text and the, and their viewpoints were, um, you know, motivated by race as well, initially. And then, you know, even though today the, most Indologists would try to deny that, they're still perpetuating the same kind of theories. You know, the, there are many ludicrous theories. Like, for, for one, there's something called the inversion hypothesis, where they say the Kauravas were the good guys and the Pandavas were bad. And, um, you know, like that, they have many theories that are far-fetched that would be very... Um, that would be viewed as very disrespectful and baseless by any um, Indian that, you know, has even read a little bit about their own culture and tradition. Venkat, I did not know about this inversion theory and 
um, and Mahabharat. So thank you for bringing this to my attention. And as you were speaking, I couldn't help but think that this topic of privilege, especially implicit privilege and within implicit privilege, especially acad academia, I think we'll have to deal with this in detail in a separate conversation, but it is also becoming evident to me that implicit privilege is a topic that has its tentacles in many of the things that are wrong today that we have to correct, especially for Hindu Americans, Hindus, and Indians. And it touches many other aspects of our day-to-day -day lives, of our politics, of our, of our future. Um, what other aspects can you share uh, with our listeners briefly that we should talk in, in following conversations? Sure. Um, we, we should talk about the implicit privilege in academia <clears throat> and talk in more detail about the Mahabharata studies so that we can show, uh, we, can, we can provide more um, details on what exactly, what kind of theories have they come up with? Is there any evidence for it? What, what is their basis for going, for following this approach? And, you know, we need to kind of define certain concepts like positivism and method and, uh, you know, talk about all this stuff. And, and I want to note here that a lot of this stuff um, I'm learning from reading the book Science and from taking a course at HUA on Aryanism and Indology. So, um, but another area that we definitely need to address is implicit privilege um, that politicians enjoy. And you know, it's, they're given a certain privilege, or, or they by society, and when they misuse that privilege, they could, you know, harm certain sections of society. And many politicians, out of self-interest, today are misusing their privilege. And um, if I can give you one example as a teaser for our next conversation. Do we have time to do that? Please go ahead, by all means. Sure. So one example would be Ro Khanna. Okay. He is the 15th richest member of Congress. And, um, you know, his wealth, as well as his position as a member or uh, as a member of Congress, gives him privilege or implicit privilege. And you know, he, he obviously is someone who has misused his privilege by um, trying to attack or malign um, certain segments of the Hindu American community. And he, he has done this basically to, um, you know, to, for, for out of self-interest. And so... You know, he, he's one who's on this privilege bandwagon, always talking about, like, um, helping the underprivileged communities. But what, what people don't recognize is he is enjoying significant implicit privilege, which he's misusing. 
And he's trying to, instead of recognizing that he's the one who's privileged, he's trying to label um, entire communities as being privileged when, you know, his, his, his um, attribution of privilege to an entire community or race is baseless, right? I, I gave you the example earlier of the uh, um, white person in Appalachia or the, you know, you should take a look at, compare the average American to Rokana, who enjoys, does the average American enjoy anywhere near the level of privilege that Rokana enjoys as a congressman and as the 15th richest member of Congress? Mm. A poor white man or woman in Appalachia who has barely anything to eat is does not have clean drinking water, uh, is likely living in an area where it's full of carcinogenic soil or uh, water. Uh, some are living in shacks with no running water, no toilet. Reminds me that when we talk about white privilege, we have to be very careful quite possibly even stop using the term because on one hand we see that the white privilege as people think of it it is does not quite exist but on the other hand we know that some people use white privilege especially in academia uh, to peddle incorrect wrong theories out there um, which I would call as the modern-day imperialism. They are not controlling you by resources, but they're controlling you by their thoughts. So if I may add one thing to the list of conversations for our future, uh, it would be to break the idea of white privilege and juxtapose it with how the concept of privilege is then utilized or misutilized when we talk about castes, for example, in India, or when we talk about, in particular, Brahmins in India, or when we talk about um, other aspects of Hinduism, which we know are being mischaracterized by politicians. So anything else, Venkat, that you would like to share before we end this conversation? Yes, um, there's one point that I, you know, had in my um, that I had thought of for this conversation that I didn't address, and that is this notion of reverse privilege, right? So there's always talk about how, you know, there's white privilege, but I want to uh, point out an example where a black person could be more privileged than a white person. So here, here's my example, okay? So if you take a very wealthy black athlete like LeBron James, okay, he enjoys much more implicit privilege than any, you know, than the average white person, okay, the average middle-class white person. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wanted to put that out there because, you know, this generalization that privilege is a one-way street and that it can be extended to an entire race is totally wrong. You could have, it's, it's very relative, right? You could have a, um, a black person having more privilege than a white person, 
you could have a white person having more privilege than a black person. Both are possible. And um, it really depends on your, you know, your, your um, economic status and where you live, because there's also, you know, you could also say that a, a, a black person living in an urban area uh, potentially um, could employ, sorry, enjoy some um, implicit privilege in the form of empathy, sympathy, and kindness from others that a poor white person in a rural area may not enjoy because, you know, be under this environment of white privilege, right? Because it, there's this viewpoint that all whites are privileged. And um, therefore, even the um, poor, um, you know, underprivileged white person, um, you know, doesn't even get to enjoy sort of the sympathy or kindness that others would have towards them um, because of their economic status. I am starting to see you wedge apart this idea of privilege from its uh, historical or usual associations with either race or, or other aspects, uh, which I think is interesting. So uh, with that, thank you very much, Venkat. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you.